Good morning, everybody. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Glad that you're here. I haven't met you before. My name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King. Uh, we had a phenomenal weekend last week. I mean, I have never quite seen anything like that. Um, unbelievably touched by the number of people who uh, accepted Christ rededicated their lives, were baptized in Jesus' name. It's just an amazing experience to be able to get a front row seat on that. And I want to just give you, let's make sure we don't take this for granted. Like, let's be thankful for what God is doing. And let's realize it doesn't have anything to do with any of us and everything to do with Him. Amen? And that's just the most important part of it. I want to just give you an opportunity, especially if you're back or new. Um, by the way, I'm not sure how to feel. I don't know if I should feel sorry for you guys because apparently you couldn't go away for spring break. And so... Um, I think that's why God gave you sunshine here. Uh, we want to welcome back all the college students from spring break, but now we've got two weeks of spring break for county kids and public school kids, and so uh, I hope you have an amazing time to rest, and thanks for coming to church anyway. I appreciate that. If you're new and you're back, we want to make sure that you are equipped with great opportunities for what's my next step. So I gave my heart to Jesus last week. I was baptized last week. I rededicated my life. What do I do next? Well, we'd like to share a story with you of... Some people who actually walked and made the same kind of decision you may have made last week, and it's an amazing opportunity for us to see what do I do next. So let's take a look at the side screens and watch this story together. I grew up in a Christian home. My faith started when I was little just through prayer, and so I saw that as like a big thing and how to have a relationship with God. Throughout junior high and high school, things just got really busy and it just kind of faded away from my life a little bit. My original group of friends that I kind of made up at Western, we started going to Ecclesia and CTK and just trying to see what kind of community was like up here. And that was when I met Emily. We started kind of becoming better friends and getting to know each other. Taylor, when we started like going to stuff, she was just kind of exploring Christianity, and so was Emily. Emily was never religious at all. A big group of us all went to Alpha, and we um, went through the whole course. At Alpha, you are in a small group, and there's table leaders, and it provided a safe place to be able to open up and talk to people about our experiences through faith and any questions that we had. It was a super safe place to ask questions. So it's just a really safe place to learn and grow together. And by the end, we were praying together and we stood up and all gathered around each person and placed our hands on them and prayed over them. That small group has been a huge influence on kind of Emily and my journey to start our own small group. It's been a really amazing experience so far, starting our own small group. And I think it's helped us to seek God in everything and grow more with him and it's definitely been cool to see everybody grow together and just build deeper relationships with them you know everybody was able to go through the alpha experience together um, and then continue to grow as a small group what i love about that story is the fact that they started with alpha and then it grew into a small group and then eventually they felt led to lead their own small group which just increases the size of the circle every single time. And those three girls have been such an amazing blessing here at CTK. And that may be the same journey that you want to take, which is the journey of I start with Alpha and then I work my way into a small group because we're just absolutely convinced 
the church is supposed to be a team sport. We're supposed to do this together. And so it's not just about showing up here on a Sunday morning once a week for, you know, give God his 60 minutes. It's about just immersing yourself in the community of believers here at Christ the King. We'd love for you to facilitate that. So as you're leaving today, it's a Connect weekend at CTK. And I want to encourage you just not to blow through the comments, but take some time. Ask God, what do you want me to do and how do you want me to get plugged in? If you just accepted Christ, we want you to go to Alpha first. Alpha is just dinner and a movie. Basically, that's what it is. It's the safest environment that we have here at CTK where you can ask any faith question. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to jump down your throat. It's just we want to walk through that process with you. That starts on April the 11th, a week from this Monday. We do child care. We look after all of that. We're taking care of all, the, all of the obstacles. And then as well, the next night is something called a small group launch. And if you want to get just plugged into a small group immediately, you can join that group of people. We'd love to facilitate you getting connected in as you continue your walk uh, with Jesus and continue to grow. So many people made powerful decisions last weekend on Easter. I mean, powerful decisions, decisions to follow Jesus for the first time, decisions to get baptized, decisions to come back to Jesus because you walked away. And the one thing we all know is basically this, every one of us is going to continue to make decisions every single step of the way, every day. Here's the deal about decisions, okay? Every decision you make is an opportunity to honor God. Every decision you make is either going to honor God or dishonor God, and there really isn't very much ambiguity in between those two points. Now, here's the tough part, because we all have to discern, how do I know if I'm making a godly decision or not? How do I know my decision's honoring to God? I mean, how do I know? Well, for, for the record, let's just find out together. Some of you are going to look at your outline today if you're CTK veterans, and you're going to go, I think I've heard this stuff before. I think I've heard this message once before, because about once a year, I dragged this one up. Uh, this year, I, we were going to finish up, we were actually going to start a brand new series this week called Small Things, which is what we're going to start next week. But I told the team, no, we're going to push it back a week because God kept tapping me on the shoulder with the same thing over and over and over again. And some of you, as soon as you see something you've seen before, your first reaction is, I already got it. Thank you very much, Grant. Appreciate the input, but I'm good with this. And so I'll tell, I will make this open invitation. If you have a batting record of a thousand, if you have made perfectly good godly decisions over the past year with not a single exception, you don't need to listen to me at all. Okay. But for the rest of us who are not in denial, let's begin. Okay, so in 2001, I needed a car. I needed a cheap car. I needed a cheap car that was cheap on gas. And so I began to pray, God, would you lead me to the right car? I went to, to, to car lots looking for cars. I scoured the paper looking for God's car for me. And one day I'm walking through a lot and this car speaks to me. And the car says, I'm a gift from God. It was a 1986 Geo Metro. Okay, so just get the picture in your head, right? And it was cheap in all kinds of ways, the right kind of ways. I believed it was God's car for me. I paid $1,000 for that car, and I drove home. And within 30 days, here's what I knew. That car was not from God. It was from hell. <laughs> and that explained the sulfur smell that would come out of the heating system as soon as I turned it on. That car was designed by demons. I mean, it never ran when I wanted it to. Things would just randomly go off. I'd be driving down the road on a sunny walking day, and all of a sudden, the windshield wipers, whoop, whoop. I mean, and that'll freak you out if you don't know it's coming, right? The radio would just turn on at randomly loud volumes just, just for the sake of it. The dash lights would wink to each other. And the accelerator had this habit of getting stuck in a very bad position, okay? Now, that's no problem if you're a Canadian like me, okay? 
But if you're trying to be converted into a slow-driving, law-abiding American, that is not good, okay? Your accelerator getting stuck is not good. When you are driving the only car that was ever designed that could hit a pedestrian and lose, okay? It's like driving in, a, in an empty Pepsi can everywhere I went. It was horrible. I thought that car was the answer to my prayers. And the reason I thought it was an answer to my prayers is because in that particular situation, it kind of looked like a God thing, it acted like a God thing, it felt like a God thing, it even talked like a God thing, but I learned very quickly that was not a God thing. So how do you know? Like, how do you know or when you're trying to figure out, is this God or is this just me? Is this a godly decision or is this just coming from a motivated part of my heart that I don't even understand? Well, if you've got your Bible or your app, 1 Samuel 24 is where we're going to go this morning. And we're going we're gonna to just take a few moments. How do we figure out when something is or isn't a God thing? Let me give you some backstory. There's a king in Israel by the name of Saul. He's been chosen by God to rule God's people, but there's a problem. Saul decides to do his own thing instead of God's thing. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Just pick, I just do my thing instead of what God wants me to do. He's been rebellious, outright disobedient. He spends most of his time looking for loopholes in God's commandments because after all, he's the king and he thinks he deserves it. Because of Saul's disobedience, God fires him. At the same time, God's raising up a man by the name of David who has his own issues, admittedly so, but David loves God and God has a prophet come and anoint David as the future king of Israel. Now you need to understand this. He's been anointed, but he's not been crowned king yet. He's in the waiting time in between, the promise and the fulfillment. David says, I'm not, gonna, I'm not just going to start a hostile takeover, but Saul begins to feel this tension between him, like he's still the king even though God fired him, and this young upstart that's kind of rising, and Saul starts freaking out, so he starts chasing David all over the Middle East. Those of you who are coming to Israel with me in about three weeks, we're going to go and explore some of the very locations that are going to be described in Scripture today. David's running from cave to cave to cave in the Middle East, and Saul is hot on his heels. Now remember this, Dave's got a promise that one day he's going to be king. Saul has, just has this empty dream of former greatness, and he's got an unbelievably hard heart. And after months of chasing, this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 24. The Bible says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And yes, that means exactly what you think it means. Moving on. Okay. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay, let's just stop there just for a second. David has a promise. One day you're going to be king. David's got God on his side, and now he's got this opportunity. And it appears to be perfect. It looks like a God thing. It acts like a God thing. It feels like a God thing. And, and David's men, his own men, are saying, look, this is the moment you've been waiting for, David. We're just going to speed up God's timeline. We know God said we're supposed to wait, but look, he's right here in front of you. He's vulnerable. He's exposed. Take your sword and stick him, and this is going to go great. People get stuck in these kinds of moments all the time. When all of a sudden we're thinking, well, it's just got to be a God thing because of the way everything boiled to the top. 
I see it happening in people's relational worlds all of the time. You know, I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, you know, I'm really lonely. I'm praying that God's going to bring me someone. So they're praying and they're hoping. And then one day somebody with a pulse walks by and gives them two looks and they're just like, oh. The sky opens and angels sing and they're just like, this is it. God loves me and now I have a wonderful plan for that person's life. And this is how this is going to work. And then one day the other person's humanity boils to the surface. And even though, it, even though it was a God thing, suddenly they realize this person that they're obsessed with, all of a sudden they have coffee breath. Like, where did that come from? And they pick their teeth. And they listen to country music. I like country music too, all right? They like the New York Yankees or something unforgivable like that, okay? And, and then real issues start showing up. Like all of a sudden they realize this person's got an anger problem or there's dishonesty inside of the relationship or there's a different moral scale that just doesn't line up anymore and suddenly this gift from God suddenly doesn't look like a God thing anymore. And they end up ditching down. They get right back on the relational roller coaster one more time. And they always say the same thing, but it started out so godly. It seemed like God was in it. So how do we know if God's in it or not? In David's world, let's come back to the cave. Here's this enemy of his right in front of him. In David's world, this opportunity looked like a God thing, felt like a God thing, and talked like a God thing. The question is, was it or wasn't it? That's what we're going to find out. Now, before we dive in, to the meat of the passage, let me give you some truths to learn as we're going to walk through this. Number one is this, exercising restraint is a godly virtue. Okay, waiting is hard for us, and David was caught in that in-between time. He'd been anointed future king, but he, he hadn't been crowned yet. And waiting is hard for him, and it's hard for us. I mean, we live in an age when everything is instant, right? We've got instant coffee, instant messaging, instant gratification, instant answers. And we often forget in our rapid-fire world that that waiting time in between the anointing and the coronation, between the promise and the fulfillment, that's actually a great opportunity to go to school and to learn what God really wants you to learn. That waiting time is a great time to discern God's truth and wait on His direction. Because I don't know about you, but snap decisions rarely end well for me. I mean, good grief, I bought a 1986 Geo Metro. Enough said, right? I've said this before. I want to remind you before we really dive in here. Waiting time is never wasting time in God's kingdom. Sometimes waiting is a beautiful, beautiful thing. David needed to wait. Secondly, circumstances are a terrible way of defining a life direction. You know, why is that? It's because, you know, when we look to circumstance, we're depending on human wisdom to try and determine our direction. And I don't know about you, but I can make my circumstance say anything I want it to. I can make my voice sound like God. I can cause my own direction very, very simple. Let me give you an example. There are 17 eating establishments between my house and this church. 17 of them. And every time I drive by their signs... They beckon me to come inside and do one thing, eat. And the more grease and bacon that's involved, the happier I am. And they just keep beckoning me every time I drive past. It's like, come on in here, Grant. Come on in here, Grant. You deserve it. You know, you deserve a break today. That's how it's supposed to be. Just walk inside. Meet the Burger King. He's a wonderful guy. And he lies to you. He says, it will not stick to you. Just come on inside. Eat. Feel good. It's awesome. 
my circumstances could define what my decision is going to be. But here's what I know. I can't do that every single day. Can I treat myself every once in a while? Absolutely. But if I stop at every single eating establishment that beckons me to come in, I'll tell you what's going to happen to me, and it's not going to be good. Circumstances are a terrible way to define answers to life's tough questions. So if you can't go that route, what in the world do you do? Well, the Bible teaches this. David uses a godly decision-making grid. Let me explain it to you. It starts with this. You start with the law of God. So what, what are the things that God has laid out perfectly clear in Scripture? I mean, there's no debate about them. It's just like, this is what God says, so that's what I'm going to do. Great example, the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. It's just like, what does that mean? Honor your father and mother. But what about if they're not honorable? Honor your father and mother. God will bless you for doing that. It's clear. It's crystal clear. Secondly, there's the principles of God. The Bible does not speak to every single topic that you're going to run into as a human being, but the Bible teaches broad principles that we can look at and take and contextualize them to our modern decisions. The Bible's full of that kind of principle-centered living. Thirdly, there's the wisdom of God. God teaches wisdom. How did Jesus respond in, in, in certain social circles? How did Jesus act when he encountered certain kinds of sin or certain kinds of people? How, how did God interact with the humanity that he had created? We can learn wisdom from him, from his example. Fourthly, there's the will of God. Now, can we admit that the will of God is a difficult thing to discern at times? I mean, it's just a hard thing to wrap your head around. But we look at the will of God because that's what we're all trying to pursue. Now, you'll notice the top four. I set them apart on purpose. Randy put them on a different slide on purpose because these four have one thing in common, God. So they're asking the question, how does God wrap himself into the decisions that I need to make? Now, I added three more, and you'll notice something about these. Um, they tend to do more with us. Okay, number five is the wisdom of godly counselors. So I have a group of very godly, wise people in my life that I go to for advice. I'll ask them, hey, i got to make this decision. What do you think I should do? And I appreciate their wisdom. Number six is this thing called personal wisdom. There are times when I actually think, okay, I've got some wisdom. I think I know how to act on this whole thing. So I'm going to go with my gut and I'm going to follow this particular track. And then there's number seven, which is personal feelings. Okay? So that's them. And yes, they are in priority order. Okay? God teaches us this piece of wisdom in Scripture. You're supposed to start at the top and work your way towards the bottom. Here's the issue. Most people start at the bottom and work their way towards the top. We're going to try and reverse that trend this weekend. Because when we start at the bottom, what are we doing, right? We start with our feelings. It's the most popular question in culture, right? How do you feel about that? What do you feel like you should do? How are you feeling in this moment? Are you sad? Then you shouldn't do that. Are you happy? That must be the way you're supposed to go. I mean, let me be honest. Your feelings are the worst when it comes to determining a direction. You know why? Because they're your feelings. And your feelings are not objective at all. That's why the Bible says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. That's a pretty big statement. Okay? So we jump to number two. Well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So I'm going to trust my personal wisdom. I'm going to say this. Don't trust that either because your wisdom comes from somewhere, the same place where your feelings come from. And it's just not a great combination. 
The other part of it is this. We say we have wisdom, but I don't know about you, but my wisdom tends to revolve around how selfish I can be. My wisdom always seems to point to what makes life, what makes Grant's life easier or more convenient. That's always where I end up. So we go up another level. We go to other people. Now, I want to give you a caution. The other people you're going to, something amazing about them. They're human. They can make mistakes. So then we move on to this thing called the will of God. Okay, can we agree that the will of God is just unbelievably difficult and fuzzy at times? I mean, if it's that... If, and if it's so fuzzy, why do we get stuck there when we're trying to determine the direction for the rest of our lives? Let me give you an example, okay? True story from several years ago. I get this question all the time. Guy calls me up and he'll say, look, I've been dating this girl for a while and now I'm trying to figure out whether or not I should ask blank to marry me. That's the question, okay? So I'm not talking to anybody here that's in a marriage relationship. Not talking to the, we're talking about somebody who's pursuing engagement and getting married. So he comes in sits in my office, trying to determine if I should ask blank to marry me. He says, how can I know that, that she's the one? I'm like, you can't. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, there's no guarantees. He's like, why is that? I said, because you're both human, which means you're both sinners. And that's the miracle of a relationship, a marriage relationship, is that God puts two sinners in a covenant relationship and actually expects them to be able to work it out. Any married people in the room know that that is an interesting challenge to navigate for the rest of your life. Don't, don't put your hands up. <laughs> Someone just lost a lung with an elbow that came right flying right there. Wow, okay. So we're going through this together. And I'm going to tell you something. When I was walking with him, I did not practice what I'm going to preach today. I started right in the middle with the will of God. My bad. I'd love to be able to do this conversation over again. I've learned a few things since. But I started with the will of God. I asked the question, do you think it's, it's God's will that you should get married? He's like, absolutely. I'm like, why? He goes, because you, you should have seen the way she, that God brought her into my life. I mean, it was an amazing story. And he went on to lay on this epic story of how God had deposited this person right in front of him. I'm like, okay, well, it seems like the will of God is leading that direction. What about the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God says, it is not good for a man to be alone. And all the married men in the room said, Amen. thanks four of you. Okay, so, <laughs> but it's true, right? It's not good for a man to be alone. You know how I know that? Because I have seen single men left alone and it is not a pretty picture. Okay, I mean, it's just, they smell bad, they're selfish, they play video games, they eat the major food groups, pizza, soda, anything deep fried, meat, and Cheetos. I mean, that's what they live off of. It is not good. So the wisdom of God says, not good. Not good. And I've lived with this wisdom for 26 plus years. And I'll tell you what, as someone who married way over their head, God is right. He's just right. So the next level, let's go to the principles of God. There's a biblical principle that it says that if a man wants to get married, he should be willing to die for his wife in the same way that Jesus died for the church. So I asked him the question, are you willing to die for her? Yes. He said, yes, I am. I said, are you sure? It's not as easy as it sounds. I talked with someone last week. They made an unbelievably great point. They said, you know what? They said, dying for my family is easy. Living for them, I mean, completely for them, that's really hard work. He said, yes, I'd be willing to die for her. I'm like, okay, so far so good. Now remember, I'm going the wrong direction up the question chain. So we come to the law of God. 
The law of God says in Scripture that followers of Jesus are not to be unequally yoked. I'll unpack that in just a second. The reason for that is simple. It's because the goal of marriage is to be able to share your soul with somebody. Well, if you can't share your belief in Jesus with somebody, you can't share the deepest part of your soul with them. It's actually God protecting both of you. He's not saying, well, this person's better than that person when he says, don't be unequally yoked. No, he actually says, I want to love both of you and protect both of you. And I want you to make up your mind with regards to a relationship with me based on this relationship, not based on this relationship. So we're talking along, and I'm just like, so, is she a follower of Jesus? Because he was. He said, no, she's not. I'm like, then you have your answer. The answer is no. You should not ask her to marry you. What was his immediate response? Yeah, but I have all of these feelings for her. I'm all wrapped up in this thing. I feel like I'm in love. I mean, and you should have seen how God brought us together. I'm like, it doesn't matter. God said no. To marry her would violate God's law. He said, but no, Grant, you don't understand. Like, I really believe personal wisdom. I really believe that this is best for both of us. And I went to my mom, and she loves her and thinks she's awesome. And because he was already, like, kind of like laid out bare, I just wanted to say, bro, your mom said that because she wants you to move out. Like, <laughs> go. Mom's like, finally, get out. He threw one more thing at me. He's like, but she's hot. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> the answer is no. I said, and now you've got a tough decision to make. Are you going to love the law of God that was put there to protect both of you? Are you going to love that more than how you feel? Here's the truth. If you start at the top of the list and work your way down, you save yourself a lot of time and pain. Did you get that? If you start with the law of God and work your way down, you will save yourself so much pain. In this case, God's law was just clear. Do not be unequally yoked. So you start there. You start with God's law and then God's principles and then God's wisdom and then God's will and then the wisdom of godly people and then your personal wisdom. And finally, I would just encourage you, don't, just take your personal feelings off the list altogether because they will lead you wrong every single time. I was talking with somebody after the service. They came up and they said, so, what did he do? <laughs> he walked away from the relationship, and it was hard. But you know what's really cool about the story? He ended up marrying another beautiful girl, and they have a beautiful family. And the girl that he was connected with kept hanging out at a place called Christ the King Community Church, and just a couple of Easter's ago, she gave her heart to Christ, and now she's married to another godly guy, and they all lived happily ever after, which is a pretty cool thing. Okay, let's come back to David. Are you ready? David's enemy's right in front of him. He's trying to make a decision. David's supposed to be king. The only guy standing between him and the throne is right there in front of him, and he's completely vulnerable. And David's got a decision to make. Do I take my, my future into my own hands? Do I slit Saul's throat? This is what happens, verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing against my master. The Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and didn't allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out to the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord the king, 
When Saul looked behind him and David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground, he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I'll not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. Now understand and recognize I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I haven't wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrong things you've done to me, but my, my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Now, I want to remind you of something. It looked like a God thing. It felt like a God thing. It acted like a God thing. It talked like a God thing. Even David's men were saying, David, it's a God thing. Just take your sword and let's speed up God's timeline. But there was a hitch in David's spirit. Something inside of him said, no. What were the reasons? Reason number one, God's law. Thou shalt not commit murder. Can I tell you something that's actually horrifying about the rest of David's life? He didn't always obey that law, and it caused unbelievable pain for him. There were things that David never got to do because he decided to violate God's law. In this particular instance, he got it right. But for the rest of his life, unfortunately, David didn't practice what he preached, and he ended up paying an unbelievable price for it. So reason number one, God's law, thou shalt not commit murder. Reason number two, no one removes a king except for God. That's God's principle all the way through Scripture. God decides who's in charge. God decides who's not in charge. God appoints kings, and he removes kings. And David was willing at that point to go, I've got a promise, but it's not time for it to be fulfilled yet. So I'm going to wait until God puts me in charge. Reason number three, God promised a kingdom, so David was waiting on his time and his appointment. That's just God's wisdom. You don't need to hurry God's timeline. You just need to be sensitive to God's timeline. And reason number four, David was known as a man after God's own heart. And if you are a man or a woman after God's own heart, when God's will becomes clear, you'll know it. You know, the truth is, David didn't even need to include the wisdom of others or his personal wisdom or his personal feelings. David had the answer because he started at the top and he stayed there. So let's make this practical. You have decisions to make this week. Start at the top and stay there. What has God said that is abundantly clear to you? So you have absolute direction right now because God said, you can do this, but I don't want you to do that because I love you and I want to protect you. What is clear? Now, for some of you, if you're brand new, you just gave your heart to Jesus six days ago, you got a Bible in your packet. We've got more of them in the comments. It's like, where do I find God's law? Grant, if I'm not familiar with that, where do I learn that? We've got Bibles for you. That's where you learn it. Because in some areas, God has been just abundantly crystal clear about what he wants for his kids. And the only way you learn that is by opening the Bible. Alpha is a great place to learn that. Small groups is a great place to learn that. That's why we're actually connecting this weekend. Because that's the place where we go to learn God's law. 
I mean, you can't live it if you don't know it. And that's an opportunity. We want to walk with you on your journey as you begin to learn what did God say and what didn't God say. So we start at the top and the goal is to stay there. I promise you, if you take any decision to God and you see His law, His principles, His wisdom, and His will, I, I promise you, if you start at the top and work your way down, you'll have your answer by about level three. Because that's what God wants for you. Here's what David understood in the cave that day. What looks like a God thing, feels like a God thing, and is suggested by others to be a God thing, isn't necessarily a God thing. Did God deliver Saul into David's hands that day? Absolutely. But it wasn't for the reason that all of the men in the cave thought it was for. They thought that Saul had been placed there to speed up the timeline. That was not the purpose. In fact, if you look at the end of the story and you read all the way through, the reason God put Saul in the cave that day was to allow David to lead his men towards holiness, not towards murder. The reason Saul was in the cave that day is because David needed to learn how to wait on God's perfect time. Restraint is a beautiful virtue. The reason Saul was in the cave that day was so that David could learn to trust God and his timing completely and fully. The reason Saul was in the cave that day was to teach David and his men, you never go wrong when you choose integrity and character. Saul was in the cave that day because David needed to learn a lesson about humility I wish David would have held on to that for the rest of his life. David was grief-stricken because he cut off a corner of the robe. That was a sign of unbelievable rebellion. And here was the problem with that. The very sin that had taken Saul's kingdom was rebellion. So in summary, what can we take away today? One simple truth. If you don't get anything else, please take this with you. I can know that I've made the right decision when I base it solely on God's law, God's principles, God's wisdom, and God's will. 100% of the time. Let me say it again. I know that I have made the right decision when I solely base that decision-making process on God's law, God's principles, God's wisdom, and God's will. I start at the top and I work my way towards the bottom. I don't make the fatal mistake of starting at the bottom with my feelings and working my way in the opposite direction. So, let's make this practical. I'll just ask myself a question. Should I ever have an affair? No. Why? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Period. 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 Never, ever, 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 ever. Why? Because God wants to protect that beautiful relationship that He gave you as a gift. Never. Should I take that job? Maybe this is you. Maybe you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do professionally. Should I take that job? I don't know. Let's start at the top. Does that job, whatever you're being given an opportunity for, does that job violate command, God's commands or God's law in any way, shape, or form? Because if it does, the answer is no. Does that make sense? Does the job violate any of God's principles of honesty or integrity? Does the job violate any of God's wisdom as a whole? 
I mean, how many hours is it going to take you away from your family? Does it allow you to be able to provide for your family as God has called you to? Does it fulfill God's wisdom about using your gifts to bless people? I mean, all of these questions need to come in, but it starts with God's law, then it moves to God's principles, then it moves to God's wisdom. Here's the answer. I don't know whether or not you're supposed to take the job or not, but I do know how you're supposed to make the decision. You start with God's law and you work your way towards the bottom. You can apply this to anything. Now, there's always one guy in the, in the room that always just like, so am I supposed to pray through these things when I'm picking my shirt in the morning? Like, you can. <laughs> I would say uh, pray in the morning and then pick a shirt and then get busy, go follow Jesus, live out an example that would make him proud. And at the end of the day, when the shirt is soaked with sweat because you've done everything you can to be faithful to Christ, th- th- then I think the decision will have made itself. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the big stuff of your life where you're trying to make a decision. And I know in a room this size with this many people here, some of you are making life or death decisions this coming week. Can I plead with you to do it David's way? Law of God. Principles of God. Wisdom of God. Will of God. The wisdom of many counselors. And leave the other two Start at the top, work your way towards the bottom, and I promise you, on that journey of decision-making, you will meet Jesus every step of the way if you do it His way and in His order. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together this morning. God, would you teach us what it means to start at the top and work our way towards the bottom? Lord, I pray that the law of God would blast through. Lord, if we don't know where to start, I pray that the Ten Commandments would ring in our ears. What a great place to start. And then, God, as we learn principles and wisdom and your will, Lord, would you press that in deeply on our souls so that we make decisions? Because, God, we so desperately want to make decisions that honor you. God, we don't want to dishonor you. So, Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray this prayer for me. Would you give me the wisdom to start at the top with your perfect will, your perfect law. And Lord, may the law that I've learned from Scripture saturate my mind, drip into my heart, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I pray for any of my brothers and sisters who are making difficult decisions, maybe about relationships, maybe about friendships, Maybe about work, maybe about family. God, I pray for all of us that we would start with your law. We'd start with your law and work our way from there. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you that you are enough for us. So Lord, teach us. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. All God's people said.